We are continuing our study in the uh, New Testament epistle, James. You'll recall, I hope, that James is Jesus Christ's half-brother. He did not believe in Jesus as Savior while Jesus uh, was in his family and while Jesus did his public ministry on the earth. Uh, James' transference of trust to his half-brother for salvation from sin awaited James seeing Christ resurrected bodily from the dead. And so if there's somebody you're praying for that has heard the gospel, has seen God work in your life, and has yet to trust Jesus to be personal Lord and Savior, keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep witnessing. Keep loving that individual. Don't write them off. James' half-brother grew up with Jesus sinless in Nazareth for 30 years and did not believe until he saw Christ rise from the dead. So keep praying for your a loved one who doesn't yet know Jesus, although they've heard the truth about Jesus a lot. The passage that is before us this morning is James 4, 13 to 17. It's a very direct passage. It's a passage that warns us against presumption. Presumption is uh, warned against in these verses. What is presumption? Presumption is pretending that we have it all together and we have control of everything. An example of presumption would be the salesman who spends his commission income before he earns it. Or the teenage girl who names her future babies. Or the person who says, I've got it. I've got it under control. These are examples of presumption. And presumption is wrong, dare I say it's sin, for the child of God. Because God's will pertains to every detail of his children's lives. And for us to not consider God's will in every detail of our lives is to be presumptuous. And so when we look at the verses before us, they are very specific in the areas of life that are named, that God has a will pertaining to these areas. Just in this passage, areas like whether or not we travel, where we go, when we go there, how long we stay there, what business we do there, what profits we make there. These are all things that are addressed directly in this passage that warns us against presumption. Apparently, <laughs> there is no such thing as saying, oh, I'm, go I'm only going on a business trip. I'm only going to school. I'm only going to the grocery store. God has a will that penetrates, that permeates all of our life situations. I visited many a hospital in my day as a pastor. I visited hospitals in Canada for 20 years. I visited hospitals in Pennsylvania for six and a half years. And I've had the privilege of visiting in uh, Nassauvian hospitals for almost two years. I've been in a lot of hospitals. Almost every hospital has a chapel, but I dare you to find the chapel in some hospitals. You ask someone, where's the chapel? And sometimes employees go, do we have a chapel? Or you ask an employee at a hospital, some hospitals, where is your chapel? Well, you go up these stairs, and then you exit the building, and you go across the parking lot, and then I think it's the third door on your left. Sometimes when you go to hospital ch chapels, they're locked. 
You know what that reminds me of? That each of us has a chapel of our soul. Where is the chapel of your soul located? Front and center? Or down some corridor of your thinking, around some bend, three doors on the left, and if you get to the chapel of your soul as you plan your day or your life, is the door ever locked? And you say, that's okay, I'll go on without God. How busy is the chapel of your soul? I like hospitals whose chapels are constantly open, never locked, 24 hours a day. Doctors, nurses, ambulatory patients, family of patients can go to those chapels and pray. There are Bibles in the pew of those chapels and they can read God's word. I love those kind of hospitals. I love hospitals that have chapels when you look down, the carpet's kind of worn. I like that. Is the carpet of the sole of your chapel worn from you kneeling on it all the time about everything? God, what is your will about this? God, show me your will about that. I want to have the attitude that I saw in Montreal years ago. I was living with a Haitian family for a week, ministering the word with a Haitian church in Montreal. And they had a large family, and they were gracious to welcome me into their family for the week. And one of the first nights I was there, they came to the discovery they didn't have any milk. So the pastor of the family talked to his oldest teenage son and sent him to the store to buy milk. That's ordinary enough. But here's what was not ordinary to me. When he came back with the jug of milk, I watched. He came in the door. He set the jug of milk down carefully on the floor, and then he prayed something like this. Oh, God, thank you for willing it that I could go to the milk store and not be harmed. And I've come home safely. I thank you for your will in this matter. In Jesus' name, amen. The chapel of that lad's soul is always open. And the carpet on the chapel of his soul is worn. You know, there are many questions in life, of course, infinite number of questions. But I'll tell you something. I don't want a chapel of my soul that is so derelict and run down with the cobwebs in it. I want the chapel of my soul instead to be a place that is maintained by my uh, attention and occupancy, and it's used. I want my chapel of my soul to be like the turbine engines on Bahamas Air aircrafts that are maintained fastidiously for the safety of the passengers on board those planes. Well, let me give you some perhaps common questions that, that we ought to really see as being questions we take to the Lord and to consult him. And what is your will in these questions? Things like, what school to attend? What program of study to select? Who to marry? What church to plug into? What percentage of monies that we have in our care to give back to God's work? How to respond to the Great Commission to take the gospel to the corners of the earth and to make disciples of all nations? How many children to have? 
what house to buy or apartment to rent, when to switch jobs or when to add a second job, whether or not both married partners would work outside of the home, where to save money or invest money if you have some to save or invest, what direction your family will take with respect to vacation, recreation, Christian service. How should we entertain ourselves? What standards should we have in that? How will we go to the Lord when we know we're sick for the first time? Will I ever retire? And if I do retire, what will I do after I've retired to serve Christ? What will I do if I become a widow or a widower? When should I become a formal member of Calvary Bible Church? What car should I buy? When should I use tough love with people I love? How shall I pay my bills? And this season in Bahamas, who shall I vote for? God's will permeates every aspect of his blood-bought children's lives. We would do well to remember that. Because if we'll remember that, we will not be presumptuous. We will not plan or live any day as if God is somehow on the sideline and the chapel of our soul is locked tight. You know, it was Augustine, St. Augustine, who said, love God and do as you please. That sounds maybe a little odd to you. Love God and do as you please. There's a lot of good theology in that. I'll show you that in Psalm 37, verse 4, that's exactly what the Word of God teaches. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'll tell you what, that's not incredible body of Christ. That's not name it, claim it Christianity. That's not prosperity Christianity, that Jesus died to make you rich. That's not what this is. This is saying that if we will delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. That is, he will author his desires in your heart. He will write on the tablet of your heart his desires. And so when you say, okay, Pastor Rob, I want that. I want to love God so that I can know I can do what I please after I've loved him adequately. Pastor Rob, how do I know if I'm delighting myself in the Lord? It's easy. Who or what do you think of when you're free to think about anything? In the shower. Who or what do you think about? Driving to work with the radio off. Who or what do you think about? Having a cup of tea alone in your home, who or what do you think about? Laying your head on your pillow each night and drifting off to sleep, who or what do you think about? Who or what you most think about when you're free to think about anything at all is the one you de most delight in. Billy Graham also said that uh, a checkbook, a Christian's checkbook determines uh, the level of the Christian's love for Jesus. Well, St. Augustine had it right when he said, love God and then do as you please. 
I'm afraid that many in the evangelical church in the first world countries, Britain, Canada, the United States, etc., have got it wrong. And these believers box God's will out of their thinking and their decision making, and they say, do as you please and say that you love God. Hear the difference? Do as you please and then say you love God, or love God and then do as you please. Very different. Extremely different. And so James 4, 13 to 17 is driving home one truth. It is a good truth to know, but it is a better truth to live. And the truth of James 4, 13 to 17 is rather simple. It's that God's will extends to every detail of your life. God's will extends and penetrates every detail of your life. You know, God is a personality. He is a spirit personality. God the Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. And Jesus Christ is now in a physical body that he took at the incarnation the first Christmas. He rose in a tangible physical body. He's seated at the Father's right hand in that glorified body. But basically, God is spirit. And those who would worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. But God being spirit, don't miss the fact he is a personality spirit. What is personality? Personality is intellect, God thinks thoughts. Feelings, God feels feelings. He has emotions. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, for example. And God has a will. As a spirit personality, God has a will. He has a will for your life. Every detail of your life. God not only thinks, God not only feels, God chooses. God chooses how to deal with all of humanity, but God chooses how to deal with little old you and little old me. This is important. This is very important for us to understand. Now, as the steam starts coming out, I want you to picture the steam as it rolls out of the kettle for a few minutes here, as every human being who's been born in the image of God and is frail in the flesh and subject to death. All of the humanity's lives in individual increments is like this, steam, transitory, temporary. It's just steam. And so because our lives are such, we ought not to be presumptuous. And James 4, 13 to 17, to say it again, the big idea is that God's will extends to all the details of our lives. So number one, according to the text, we don't say, I'm going to do this or that. We do say, the Lord willing, I will do this or that. So let's unpack these ones at a time. Don't say, I'm going to do this or that. See it there in verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So we aren't to say, I'm going to do this or that. We are to say, the Lord willing, I'll do this or that. And there are two reasons given that we don't say, I'm going to do this or that. 
And the first reason is that life is uncertain. You ever notice that? Life is uncertain. First part of 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Life is uncertain. Very uncertain. Accidents happen. People let us down. Companies downsize. Health is fragile. Money has wings. Crops fail. Children rebel. Criminals victimize. Storms destroy. Marriages break up. Churches split. Life is uncertain. Those are all negative things I gave as example. Life is uncertain. But there are also positive things that happen when life is uncertain. Accidents are avoided. It's a miracle that our church SUV hasn't been dinged somewhere along driving in the Bahamas. It's a miracle. Accidents are avoided. People come through. Jobs offers pop out of nowhere. Diseases go into remission. Sometimes we find money. There are bumper crops. Children grow in grace. Criminals get caught by the police. Storms miss where they're supposed to go. Marriages endure and get stronger until death separates. Churches grow and churches plant baby churches. Life is uncertain whether you look at the negative contingencies or the positive contingencies. Life is uncertain. (laughs) There's a little poem here. Boy, that's a lot of people. Life is a story in volumes three, the past, the present, and the the yet to be. The past is gone, locked away. The present, we live it day by day. The future, the last of the volumes three, is hidden from sight. God holds the key. The clock of life is wound but once, and no one has the power to know just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you have. Live, love, pray with a will. Put no faith in tomorrow, for the clock may then be still. Life is uncertain. But there's a second reason we aren't to say, I'm going to do this or that. Not only is life uncertain, but life is brief. The second part of verse 14. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This is my wife's makeup mirror. She's got a lot of faith that I won't shatter it with the heat. But as I let this steam touch this cooler mirror, you see the steam on the mirror, now you see it, (laughs) now you don't. The steam, that the, the verse uses the illustration, the object lesson, that our lives, compared to eternity, our lives are like steam on a mirror. It shows for a little while, but then it's gone. We don't act or think presumptuously because not only is life uncertain, life is brief. We'll unplug that. And so we don't say, without factoring in God, without going to the chapel of our soul, we don't say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Instead, we say, I'm going to do this if it's God's will. I'm going to do that if it's God's will. I I must say that in Canada and the United States, the only other countries I've pastored in other than the Bahamas, those nations, evangelical Christians, basically are not so good at putting that phrase on the end of statements. I have touched 
in the Bahamas that the, the Christ believers and followers in the Bahamas, you often regularly say, if the Lord wills, if God gives life. I love that. I love that very much. Life is brief. It's compared to a mist. The Greek word translated vapor here is also translated other places as steam or smoke. And the thing about all of this, mist, steam, vapor, smoke, is that they're only around for a little while. Mist burns off and vapor vanishes and steam condenses and smoke wafts away in the wind. Now you see it. Now you don't. Persons who understand that their lives are brief are not morbid. They're wise. People who understand that their lives compared to eternity are very brief are not fatalistic, negative. They're smart. They're wise. Long ago, when an Eastern emperor was crowned at Constantinople, the royal mason, that is the stone craftsman, would set before the newly enshrined emperor a certain number of marble stones or slabs. And then he would insist that the new emperor choose then and there the marble slab for his own tombstone. To remind the emperor that no matter how high he was lifted up in power and authority, that one day he was going to die. Life is uncertain. So don't say, I'm going to do this or that. And life is brief, so don't say, I'm going to do this or that. God's will, this is the positive, God's will extends to the very details, all of the details of our lives. And because it does, we do say, the Lord willing, I will do this. God granting it, I will do that. If I have life from God, I will go this place or that place. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. This passage is saying, now we know the right thing to do, not to be presumptuous, to include God's will in our thinking and all the statements we make, the plans we make, if we don't do that, it's sin. I told you that I felt, in my opinion, that the evangelical church in America and Canada and England and other places has grown away from this whole biblical concept of saying, if the Lord wills, like we ought to say, according to James chapter 4. But Kent Hughes has well observed that, quote, it is not without significance that the Puritan epoch as well as the Wesleyan revivals, were golden ages of evangelical Christianity. God willing is the posture of a burning heart. Hughes is saying that when he looks at church history and sees the zenith, the high point, the most strengthened part of the evangelical church across church history, it was when believers in the Wesleyan revivals and the Puritan circles lived with a if-the-Lord-wills point of view. 
One of the practical ways you can welcome humility and evict boastful, bragging presumption from your life is to start saying and thinking and writing God willing on everything. Deo valente in Latin, Deo God, valente willing, DV. Puritans and Wesleyans would write letters, I'm told, sign their signatures and put Capital D, period, capital V, period, Deo Valente. Everything I've written in the letter is only if the Lord wills it, DV. We could put that at the end of our emails, right? Everything I've put in this email, what I'm telling you I'm going to do, or what I'm thinking, or what I think is good, DV. God's will extends to every detail of our lives. And because it does, the chapel of your soul should be a busy place. Because God's will extends to every detail of your life, the chapel of your soul should have an unlocked door. It should have worn out carpet. It should be a place you go a lot. The chapel of your soul should have a motto on the wall in the soul of your heart, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. There were missionaries who had a unique name about 100 years ago. They were called one-way missionaries. They were called one-way missionaries because they went from their home country to the mission field God had called them to on a one-way boat ticket. They did not buy a return boat ticket because they knew they weren't coming back to their home country. Instead of carrying suitcases on the ships to go to the foreign mission field that they were heading to, they took their own coffins. And they packed their slim amount of earthly goods in their own coffins. There was one particular missionary, A.W. Milne. He was a one-way missionary. He set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters there had martyred every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his own life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe and loved them. When he died, the tribe members buried him in that coffin he brought 35 years previously to their village. And he buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed the following epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. One-way missionaries, if the Lord wills. Remember I told you about the emperor in Constantinople who the day he was made emperor, the stonemason brought various slabs of marble and said, pick your tombstone, emperor. I wonder if it would be a helpful exercise for us to do something this week before next Sunday. I wonder if it would be a helpful exercise for our spiritual health if we gave serious thought to writing our own tombstones. 
I'm not talking about your full name and the date you were born, the date you died. I'm talking about if this tombstone could hold a lot of words. What would you like to have said about you on your tombstone if it could hold a lot of words? Could you give some thought and prayer to that this week? And before Sunday, could you phone up a brother or a sister in Christ or me and tell me what you would want your tombstone to read? That would be a wonderful exercise that ties into this text, that ties into the if the Lord wills. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall do such and such in a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, for we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Please pray with me. Lord, we confess the times and the ways when we are presumptuous, when we do not consider the truth that your will impacts and touches upon every single detail of our lives. Lord, help us to say, if the Lord wills, often, and help us to go to the chapel of our individual souls all the time to seek your will, May the chapel of our souls be never locked, never full of cobwebs. May the sign within the chapel of our souls say, if the Lord wills. Thank you for this wonderful time in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name together. And God's people said, amen. Amen.